Well, this morning I have the privilege of introducing to you Pastor Luke from Woodridge Community Church. Pastor Luke is a longtime friend. Most of you know Pastor Luke. He's been here before. He's preached here before. He's a preaching pastor at Woodridge, and we go way back. He's been a faithful friend to me and an encouraging companion. As I strive to be a faithful pastor, he's been alongside of me, him and the elders at Woodridge. We appreciate them so much. And this morning, I've asked him to come and preach the word to us. So Pastor Luke, would you come? Good morning. I was just asking Chuck for some permissions, and uh, he gave them to me. So uh, this morning, I will be preaching out of Luke 23, 32 through 43. So I invite you to turn there now. This is a passage that I preached on last year when our church was going through the Gospel of Luke. And as Pastor Chuck and I discussed what text I would preach, uh, this came to mind. And I'm I'm gonna be a little ahead of where you are in the Gospel of John, but I think I will serve you well because this text deals with some things that are not recorded in John's Gospel, but Luke records them for us. So I hope to add and be a blessing to your series through the Gospel of John. Uh, Familiarity with the person and work of Jesus Christ is a great blessing. And so if you have grown up or you're right now growing up in a Christian family, you're blessed. To be a part of a family that goes to church is a great blessing. To have godly and faithful parents is a great blessing. But there is a danger, and the danger does not come from these blessings. The dangers come from our own hearts. We can grow familiar with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we've grown up in a Christian family or because we've gone to church since we can remember or because we have faithful, godly parents who continue to remind us of the greatness of Jesus Christ and his goodness to us, we can grow apathetic, indifferent, lackadaisical when it comes to the things of God. And I believe that this passage will serve all of us well if some of us maybe struggle at times with apathy and indifference and lackadaisicalness. I don't know if that's a real word, but we're going to use it today as if it's a real word. And so this passage is going to put before us glorious truths. It's overflowing with glorious truths like what Christ endured for us, the sovereignty of God and the grace of God for sinners. And so I hope to serve you well with this text. Uh, there, there are two ways to look at why I'm preaching this morning uh, to your church and not at, at my church. In the providence of God, he lined all this up. So I believe that the Lord has me here to, to serve you God's word this morning. But the other reason is because uh, last month, we were going on our elder advance. You see, elders don't retreat, we advance. So. We, we gathered together for, it was 24 hours of basically an in-depth, intense elder meeting that lasted. There was breaks, we ate lots of meat, we enjoyed lots of fellowship, we sang songs, but it was just pretty much one long elder meeting. And if you are familiar with what elder meetings can be like, they can be intense, they can be long. Some of us elders like to talk more than we need to in those meetings. And so it was a long elder advance. And 
In order to focus all of my attention on that, I was supposed to preach that Sunday and I asked ahead of time if Chuck would come and, and serve the church and he served us well when he preached. Uh, and I, I remember the, the sermon, uh, the, the Lord desires obedience over sacrifice. And I think you heard that sermon a while back as well and, and it was a great blessing to our church. And so I, I hope that you'll remember this sermon, not because of the preacher, but because of, of the truths that this text puts before you. And so the permission I asked for was, would, would I be allowed to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word? And Chuck gave me that permission. So would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Luke 23, 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, our great and sovereign God, who is good to his people, who is so good to his people, who blesses his people with, with all that they have and more than we know. Lord, I, I praise you for the blessing of the local church that your people are gathering throughout the world right now. Some have already gathered and some will, will still gather to, to lift high the name of Jesus, to celebrate the gospel and the, and the good news of, of what has been done for them in Christ, what has been done for us in Christ. And so we receive this morning's work, this morning time together in worshiping you as a gift the sweetness of fellowship, the joy that comes when we lift our voices together in unison to sing your praises, to sing the truths that we believe and to rejoice in them. Lord, as much joy as there is when your people with glad hearts gather to worship you, there can also be sorrow and heavy hearts. Some are here struggling deeply, struggling with sin that is secret, that has not come into the light. Others are struggling greatly with physical and, and other types of ailments, cancer, sickness, death. Lord, we pray for those who are in Christ battling through these things, that they would look to Jesus, that they would remember the gospel, that they would be refreshed by your word and the passage that we will be in this morning, that you would feed their souls. We also pray for those who are not in Christ and are suffering. How hopeless how sad it is to suffer apart from Christ. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would work a great miracle. The only thing that, that can be done uh, to rescue them from this hopelessness is, is a work of your spirit, that you would open their eyes, 
Give them ears to hear and change their hearts that they would receive the truth by faith. That you would do the great work that, that only you can do. Bring them to life. Regeneration, Lord, we pray. So that as they continue to suffer, that they would suffer by faith. Entrusting themselves to a faithful God who is always with his people. In the good and in the bad. In the celebration and in the sorrow. Lord, we ask that you would give us what we need that your people would be strengthened, that this church would be strengthened as we look to this text and, and we seek to enjoy all that you have and apply all that you have for us in it. Lord, I pray that you bless the preacher, that as I proclaim your word, that I would be strengthened by the truth as well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is hard to fully comprehend the amount and the extent of the suffering that the Lord Jesus endured leading up to and culminating with his dying to atone for our sins and to reconcile us to the Father. His suffering was holistic in that it was physical, it was spiritual, and it was mental. The physical pain that Christ experienced included being beaten with fists and a stick whipped to the point that he could not carry a 30-pound weight on his back. And he's a, he was a strong man. And he couldn't carry a 30-pound weight on his back because of the beating that he received. It included him being nailed through his wrists and feet to a wooden cross. And then there was all the physical suffering that came from his death by crucifixion. Jesus also experienced the horror of spiritual suffering when God the Father poured out his righteous wrath for every believer's sin on him. Christian, when this happened, Jesus experienced what we deserve to experience and what those who do not repent and trust in Christ will experience in hell forever. The holy and absolutely righteous wrath of God. And I think those two aspects of, of the torment that Jesus endured are often emphasized, rightly. But Jesus also experienced an agonizing amount of mental suffering, what some would refer to as emotional or psychological suffering. This aspect of his suffering included the loneliness that Jesus experienced from the time that he was arrested when he was abandoned by his disciples and reached its apex when shortly before he gave up his spirit, quoting Psalm 22:1, he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then there was the sorrow that came from being completely innocent and not just of the charges that led to his painful death, but innocent of ever having sinned. Still, he was condemned to die because of wicked and guilty men. Then there was the mental suffering that came from being mocked and ridiculed by Roman guards and religious leaders. And there was all the shame that came with being crucified, which was a public form of capital punishment intended to deter crime. The Romans used it for a purpose. You lie, you steal, you do things against the state, then you're going to hang on a piece of wood in front of everybody, your family, your friends, and every stranger that walks by, and they're going to see you die. As I prepared to preach this passage, I was again reminded of how much Jesus Christ suffered for me and for you, Christian. What he endured for his church to rescue and redeem us. What I was especially struck by was the mental suffering that Christ experienced. This was fueled in part as I considered a certain detail related to what was done to someone who was crucified. It's not something new that, that I've just recently heard for the first time. It's maybe something that won't be new to you as well. 
but it's an important detail and it relates to his mental, his, his psychological suffering that he endured for us. And what is this detail? Jesus was crucified naked. And here's the quote that I came across in my studies that caused me to contemplate this. It is from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. He writes, crucifixions took place near the most crowded roads so that the most people could see them. Rome thought that this led to maximal deterrent value. The procedure was horrid, but standard. Then Davis quotes another scholar who writes, the victim was stripped of all his clothing, which increased the public abasement. Not only does the victim suffer from excruciating pain, thirst, and the torment of insects burrowing into open wounds, which they could do nothing to prevent, but he must also endure the shame of jabs of spectators poking at his bodily parts and their mocking when he is unable to, con- to control his bodily functions. This was not a clean death for our Savior. Again, I've, I've known that Jesus was crucified naked. But this reality is, is especially shocking to consider that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was stripped of all of his clothes, nailed to a cross and lifted up for all to see his broken and beaten and naked body. Think of, think of the, the people who were there that day and, and consider who saw him in this state. The religious leaders who hated him and had plotted his murder saw him like this. Their, their plan was successful in their minds. We hate this man. He claims to be a savior. He, he claims to be God. And now look at him. He's hanging on a cross naked. They saw his nakedness as, as well as the, the Roman soldiers who were there. They saw it too. Though more indifferent than the religious leaders, they treated him like a criminal. Mary, Jesus' mother, was there, his own mom. Then there were his disciples who called him rabbi and followed him for three years. And then there was the countless nameless travelers who passed by the cross on their way into or out of the city of Jerusalem. Some laughing some looking away because they didn't want to see the sight. But there was our Savior naked before all to see. R.C. Sproul, addressing the significance of Jesus being crucified naked, explains that to the Jewish person, this was dreadfully humiliating and an insult to human dignity. Christ's punishment far exceeded the physical pain of crucifixion, for he experienced the outer darkness of the forsakenness of God. He became a public spectacle. Now, there can be a sense of horror when a, uh, uh, sorry, a sense of honor when a soldier dies in battle with his armor on. All of us who enjoy those, those battle scenes, I think of Braveheart, Gladiator, you know, and a, a strong, tough, and, and one of the good guys dies in the battlefield you know, that, that's, that's like for us men, that's like a, a chick flick, all right? Like that's honor. Like that'll bring the strongest of men to tears. Reading about or, or being reminded of a brave soldier dying in battle with his armor on. 
Yet here is, is the one that Colossians 1, 16 through 20 says that all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The one who is before all things and who holds all things together. And here he is dying naked on a wooden cross before everyone to see. That does not seem like an honorable death. The shame and horror of it all. The Lord of life. The King of kings. Beaten. Abandoned. Naked on a cross. Dying. The passage doesn't directly speak of Jesus' nakedness. But it does tell us something that points to it. Look with me at the second half of verse 34. Turn there if you haven't already. But before I look more at that verse, I should mention that there is a debate among scholars surrounding the first half of the verse, which records the supposed first of Jesus' statements from the cross, which is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I say supposed because the earliest manuscripts do not include this statement, which is mentioned in a footnote in most modern translations. So whether you have the 2001 ESV or the the more modern one, whether there's stricken and smitten or whatever the other words were this morning that were changed or tweaked a little bit, um, it should have a footnote in in your translation that mentions this this, uh, about the earliest manuscripts not having that part of the verse. And for this reason, some scholars believe that Luke didn't write this, but that a scribe added it later. Now, based on the other things that Jesus said in his ministry, like Matthew 5, 43 and 44, where he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Even if Luke did not write, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This does seem like something that that Jesus would say. So however we, we deal with this, this footnote and this possibility, it seems like, like it's part of his character, that this aligns with our Savior. But either way, for our sake this morning, our focus will be on the second half of verse 34, which is, and they cast lots to divide his garments. The they here refers to the Roman soldiers who crucified him. A reason why this dividing of his garments would be mentioned here is because the soldiers had just taken off Jesus' garments in order to crucify him. And then after crucifying him, the soldiers took advantage of one of the, the perks of their job, one of the benefits of their job. And they gambled for his garments, which were of some value. And Luke makes sure to mention the guards doing this. There's no debate over this part of the verse because it is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, 16 through 18, which says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 is frequently quoted in the New Testament. In it, David says many things that refer to Jesus' crucifixion nearly 1,000 years later including they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. In doing this, the Roman soldiers unknowingly fulfilled scripture. 
From this verse written hundreds of years earlier by King David, we can conclude that it was always part of God's sovereign plan that Christ would endure the shame of being crucified naked. So this wasn't an accident that that the son was hanging from a wooden cross for all to see naked. And why was this? What was the purpose? Why such public shame? Why did God plan it this way? And, And why was Jesus willing to go through with this? Part of the answer goes all the way back to the fall. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, we were told in Genesis 3, 7 through 11, that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, since the fall, physical nakedness has been associated with guilt and shame before God. And when Jesus Christ endured the shame associated with nakedness, he experienced the guilt and shame of our sin and provided our covering. This was foreshadowed in Genesis 3.21 when after God tells Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin and promises them that one day a seed of the woman will bruise or crush the head of Satan, we're told that after we're, we're given this information, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so God provides a covering. At that time, an animal died to temporarily cover their shame, but those animal skins, they, they, they didn't take away the shame that came with their sin. However, when Jesus Christ died, God made a way for our shame to be covered up once and for all. Friends, Jesus experienced the shame of nakedness to cover the shame of our sin. And in doing so, Christ has clothed us with his righteousness. We sang about that together in one of the songs. And his righteousness will will never wear out. It will not fade. And there's nothing better to cover us so that we can stand before God without shame than the righteousness of Christ, which comes by faith alone. Every other garment will fade and become dust. Young people, the coolest clothes you got right now, they're not going to be cool and eventually you're going to give them to Goodwill or Salvation Army and, and they're going to go into a landfill and they're going to become just, just dirt. The coolest thing you have will be worthless. And yet if you are covered in the righteousness of Christ, you are covered in what will forever cover your sin and take it away. Brothers and sisters, Christ did this for us willingly. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The King of Kings. Again, if you have a, a proper doctrine of Christ and you think of what he went through for us, it will blow your mind. He did it willingly. 
It was all part of the route that Jesus would take to the throne. How wonderful, how glorious, how great is our King. And this brings us to consider a real irony in this morning's passage. We're told that the rulers scoffed at Jesus, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. By not saving himself, Jesus saved others. By not saving himself from the cross, he saved you, Christian. And the reason why he could do this is because he is the Christ of God, God's chosen one. So they're mocking him with the truth. And then we are told that the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They they didn't come up with this idea to call him the king of the Jews. It was the very charge used by the Jewish leaders to condemn Jesus as seen in the inscription that was placed over him. This is the king of the Jews. They just had to read. They just had to read what was above his head. And it was written by Pilate's own hand, the king of the Jews. And they were absolutely right. Jesus was and he is the king of the Jews. And not only the king of the Jews, but the king over all people. Jesus is the king who rules over the Romans and the Greeks and the Chinese and the Sudanese and the Americans. He is not just a crucified king, he is the crucified king. Church, he is our crucified king. And what a great and gracious king Jesus is. Do you see the irony? The king who willingly endured the shame was mocked by sinners for being the king. When the reality was that he is an even greater king than they understood. They should have been bowing before him in awe and wonder, worshiping him, and they were mocking him. And this brings us to verses 39 through 43. Describing these verses, J.C. Ryle said that they should be printed in letters of gold. They have probably been the salvation of countless thousands of souls. Multitudes will thank God to all eternity that the Bible contains the story of the penitent thief. Uh, Ryle wasn't an advocate of like the red letter Bibles, so don't, don't mistake here what Ryle is getting at. He's saying these are precious words. They're all precious, but, but there's something in, in this, this detail here that, that Ryle says is especially precious for all to see and behold. I find it hard to disagree with Ryle often. There's things that I disagree with him on, but I often find him hard to disagree with, and and here's one of those times. The story of one of the criminals who was crucified with Christ, trusting in Christ just before he died, has undoubtedly helped many people repent and trust in Christ who thought that they were too sinful, too wicked, too far from God to ever be saved. People on their deathbeds, and I've had the privilege of, of seeing this, People on their deathbeds, repenting in their last days, last hours, and trusting in Christ. For the Holy Spirit has has likely used this man's conversion right before his death to assure others that despite their sin, they too can turn to Christ. Perhaps there's someone here who needs to be encouraged with these truths. No one is too sinful, no one is too wicked. No one is too evil, too far from God for Christ to be able to save them. Friend, you are not too sinful. You are not too wicked. You are not too evil for the Lord of life who endured the cross to save you. 
King Jesus can, and he will save you. Jesus, is, Jesus bore the shame that sinners deserve to bear to cover his people with his righteousness. You are unrighteous. You need a covering, and only Christ can be that covering. He did this for the joy that was set before him, which includes the glory that he receives in saving sinners from the eternal shame that we deserve. And I want to pause right there and make some application to the church. There is joy before us in our suffering as well, in our hardships, in the labors that you are doing as a church in this place. And there are going to be reasons to give up. Somebody sins against you. Somebody misunderstands you. Somebody jumps to conclusions. There's disunity among leaders at times. You're discouraged. You feel burnt out. But there is joy at the end of this. There's work to do, brothers and sisters. Don't you give up. Don't you turn your back on your brothers and your sisters. That's foolishness. You're playing into Satan's hand. Hard work is hard. You're going to suffer. But if you've been redeemed, don't waste your life looking simply for the most easy, most comfortable thing that you can do and just get by. Don't coast. Christ knew it was before him when it came to the cross and he knew there was joy after it. And there was no way around it. He had to go there to, to experience the joy that he and the Father and the Spirit had planned out before time. And there's joy for you, Christian, even if you're in the middle of suffering. And some of it will be tied through you continuing to trust the Lord and obey the Lord in your suffering. In this passage, we find two men who in the providence of God are put right next to Christ the day that they die. Think about that. Two unbelievers, two wicked men put right next to Jesus on their last day on earth. Both of them are given a front row seat to witness our King and Redeemer bring about our redemption. We're told in verses 39 through 43, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's compare what this passage tells us about these two criminals. Because in doing so, we will hear what unbelief and true belief sounds like. Faced with the reality of his death, the first criminal railed at Christ. He railed at Christ. The, the Greek word behind railed can also be translated into English as slander, malign, blaspheme. So when death neared and he would soon have to give an account to God for all of his sin, this man verbally attacked Jesus. He did the same type of thing that the Jewish religious leaders had done, telling Jesus to prove it by demanding that Jesus save himself and the man. This is the foolishness of an unrepentant heart coming out of this man's mouth. He is telling God that God must do what he wants and he must do it now. This is, this is what unbelief sounds like. Give me this right now, God, and I demand it. Do it, prove it. 
Prove that you're God. Give me what I want. How presumptuous to tell King Jesus what he must do and to use slanderous and blasphemous words against the Lord. This is what is in the unbeliever's heart towards God when faced with the reality of their death. They make demands and think that they can require things from God. This man is full of pride. This is the the fruit of pride. But look at how the other criminal responds. He, he doesn't rail at Christ. Instead, he questioned the other criminal for his words towards Christ and whether the man feared God. Whatever sins this second man had committed that led to his crucifixion, he was now fearing the Lord, which Proverbs 1, 7 teaches us is the beginning of knowledge. He may not have been, in, been wise in the world's eyes, but by God's grace, this man had come to learn the most important knowledge of all. He knew who God was, and he rightly feared the Lord. So he rebuked the other criminal for his wicked words. But this rebuke did not come from a sense of superiority. We see this in verse 41 as he confesses his own sinfulness and Christ's innocence, saying that he and the criminal are receiving the due reward of their deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. It's a confession of sin and acceptance of the consequence of his sin. He doesn't say, Jesus, get get me off of this cross right now. He knows he deserves the consequence that he's receiving. This is what true repentance sounds like. I am guilty and I deserve the punishment. This is what a Christian says after they are born again. I'm a sinner who deserves wrath, shame, and hell. These are the words of a repentant heart. He's not blaming others. You said this, you did this, I was hung, whatever it is. He's not pointing fingers. He acknowledges his sin and what he deserves. And at the same time, he proclaims the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, then you have done the same and you're not ashamed to do it again. You will say, I was guilty. Christ was not. I have sinned, but Christ is sinless. I deserve to die but Jesus died for me. Remember me, Lord Jesus. But that is not all there is when it comes to conversion. We must also believe on Christ. Faith always accompanies true repentance. Repentance and faith always go together. So it should not surprise us to find this man trusting in Christ. And we're told of this in verse 42, which records what this man said to the Lord. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man was trusting in Jesus. He believed that Jesus had the power to save him from the penalty and power of sin. This statement is is full of sound doctrine. The man believed that Jesus had a kingdom and the authority to bring him into his kingdom. It was a humble cry uttered from a repentant heart that flowed out of a heart that was trusting in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we may not have prayed the exact same words, but at some point, whether we remember it or not, we made the same type of plea. We cried out to Jesus. We pleaded with him to save us. We said, remember me, Jesus. God, rescue me from death and bring me into life. And and we didn't say this because we thought we we deserved it, but because we trust in Jesus. We see him rightly as the sinless one, our king, our redeemer. And that only Christ can save us from our sins. Our hope is in Christ alone. And this is ongoing. We continue to repent when we sin and we continue to believe that Jesus is King and Savior. 
At first, there seemed to be much in common between the two criminals that were crucified with our Lord. Both were sinners. Both were condemned to die for their crimes. Both of them had access to Christ. Both of them saw and they heard Jesus. So why is it that these two men who were in the same situation and and given the same opportunities responded in opposite ways? One unbelief, one belief. One receiving Christ as Lord, one rejecting Christ as Lord. One demanding, full of pride, one humble and not demanding anything. One full of anger and unbelief and the other one crying out to the crucified Jesus to bring him into his kingdom, being assured by King Jesus himself that that very day he would be with Jesus in paradise. Why these different outcomes? Because as Ryle states, this is a story that puts before us the sovereignty of God in saving sinners. Christian, it's the same reason why you trusted in Christ and your sibling or your parent or your friend has not yet and may never. It's the same reason why one child who grows up in the same house with the same parents rejects the gospel while another child in that same family repents and believes the gospel. God's sovereign grace. Put another way, the Lord chooses to save some sinners and not others. But this truth found throughout the scriptures should not cause us to be angry with God for not choosing to save everyone. It should lead us to be in awe that God chooses to save anyone and bring them into his kingdom for all eternity. It really is marvelous. The holy and righteous God who needs nothing has saved you, Christian, and promises that you and I will spend all of eternity with him, not because of what we did, not because we figured the puzzle out, not because we were in the right place at the right time and we made the right decision, but because God saves sinners by his free and sovereign choice. That's marvelous. We did nothing. He did everything. Christian, You might struggle with certain aspects of God's sovereignty and salvation, but in your struggle, do not forget that no one deserves to be saved. And the only way that you and I and all who are saved could be saved is if God overcame our spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, and our spiritually deadness and brought us to life. Christian, may the miracle of the new birth that you have been born again always cause you and I to praise and worship the God who saved us by his grace alone. That is fuel, fuel to worship God, fuel to continue when you are suffering, to trust God, fuel to increase your joy as you serve him faithfully and enjoy all the blessings that he has for you. It is absolutely amazing that God saved this man. Here he is experiencing the same type of terrible suffering that Christ endured. An agonizing death by crucifixion and while hanging from his deathbed, he's on his deathbed, but he's hanging there. He cries out to Jesus and what does Jesus do? He saves him. He had been a terrible sinner. We know this because he confesses it for all of us to read. I'm guilty and deserve to die, he says. And yet Christ saves him with nothing to give and not even a day to live for Christ and do a single good work. Jesus answers his cry and rescues him from an eternity in hell. This man who had wasted his entire life in sin 
would become a trophy of God's grace that assures every man, woman, and child that thinks that they are too bad, too sinful, too wicked, that God is indeed able and willing to save someone like them. The man repented of his sin and believed in Christ and was saved. And every sinner who does the same will be saved just like him, even if it's the last day of their life. Even if repentance and faith is the last thing that a person does before they take their last breath, God will save them and all who repent and trust in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we will see this man in glory. He wasted his entire life. And that's not to be commended. That's not good on him. Look, he got to, to enjoy all the wickedness of this world until the very last day. No, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of God's grace and goodness, not an excuse to continue in sin. If you're one of those foolish young people that think, I'll wait, I'll wait to get serious about God until, I'll, I'll wait until maybe after college, once I'm married, once I have children, are there many who have done that and God has graciously met them in their, their foolishness and saved them? But it's foolish. Today is the day. Today. Get serious about God right now. Don't wait. The sooner the better. The more you walk with the Lord, the better, you, better, better you're going to be able to enjoy and see what, what God has called you to do. I pray that, that my boys walk with, with Jesus for the rest of their lives and that they've been, they've been showing that from an early age and I want them to continue. I don't want them to, to do the stupid and foolish things that I did when I was young. But at the same time as we say that, don't be foolish like this man. Be wise like this man was on the very last day of his life. And, and what's gonna happen to all those who repent and believe? Just like the criminal who repented and believed, they will be with Christ when they leave this world. There is no such thing as purgatory for the believer. And the soul does not sleep until the resurrection. This is why to live is Christ and to die is gain. If our soul took a nap when we died and, and we were not with, with Christ until the end of time, then those who were still alive would be more with Christ than those who died. I love being with my family. I, I know that if we're all sleeping at night, we're in the same house, we're together, but we're really not together. We're all just sleeping. So, so if, if our soul just rests and, and waits un until later on, then, then to live as Christ, to die as gain doesn't really make sense. But brothers and sisters, the, the soul sleep thing is, is not the case. For the words of our great king to the man who repented and believed before he died assure us of this very thing. In response to the criminal's repentance and faith, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I don't believe he was saying you'll be sleeping in a bed and not aware of where you are. After the man died, he would be in glory with Christ. Those who die in the Lord are immediately with the Lord when they leave this world. They are with him in paradise. The, the shame of their sin is no more for they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They are joyous for they are seeing the glory of God like never before. Yeah, they're, they're still waiting for, for the, the redeemed body. The, the fully glorified state. But they are joyous for they are seeing the glory of God. While we grieve that we are temporarily separated from them, while we mourn at their funerals, while our hearts ache over the loss that we feel, we remember what Christ told the criminal on the cross. Truly I say to you, today they are with Christ in paradise. 
If they were true Christians, they are with the Lord. And Christian, when you die, you will be with him too. And it will all be by God's grace because of Jesus, the great king who endured great shame for you and for me. Isn't it wonderful? Marvelous, beautiful. And all because of King Jesus. Let's pray. Our king who endured the shame of the cross who was beaten and abandoned and naked before all. We rejoice this day that you are our king. You shed your blood for us. You endured the shame that you endured for us. We have been redeemed. Lord, help us to live in light of these great truths today that you endured what we were supposed to experience, that we, we should have experienced, but you were committed, you went willingly to the cross for us. Help us to rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Spirit, help us to be amazed that despite our wickedness, there was nothing in us that led you to choose us. It was the free and loving choice of our God. And Lord, I do pray for any who are here that think they are too wicked, too evil, too sinful to be redeemed, that that lie would be taken away and that they would cry out to Jesus like the thief on the cross and experience all the blessing that comes in being forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.